we're going to talk about this morning. They're going to multiply. It's going to be more than three. But it just, these are three headings for us to use. First of all, what is our role in politics as Christians? Second, what are the limits of politics? And third, as we think about those two things, what is our role, what are the limits? The thing that we hold those two things in balance with is the knowledge that the gospel is fundamentally political. Our most basic hope, our belief in Jesus, is a political statement that Jesus is the true king of the world. It's a political statement. So we're going to talk about these three things. So first of all, our role in politics, and uh, this passage highlights four roles that we uh, play in relationship to the politics of our nation. So this is what the four are. First of all, the Bible calls us to honor our leaders. This is something that's repeated in the Bible. You see it first here in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Now, the instruction here is for someone who's serving in a king's court who obviously disagrees with the king, and it says, do not take part in a, re- in a revolution, in a rebellion against the king. You know, don't join an evil cause. Don't overthrow him. Um, and actually, this instruction to obey a king, and a king that you even disagree with, is something that's uh, repeated in, uh, in the New Testament as well. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Romans 13 says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And he says, actually, you should honor those who are putting authority over you. You should not only just obey them, you should honor them. You should speak well of them. And um, it's amazing that Paul says that here, uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says a similar thing, that we're called to honor those who are putting authority over us. And um, it's amazing because all these rulers that are talked about in the New Testament by Paul and Peter, that, who, who say we're supposed to honor, are non-Christian rulers. And actually, it's, it's very likely that one of the emperors that they tell us to honor was Nero, who was a persecutor of Christians. He, 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 the, the first massive persecution in the Roman Empire was through Nero, and they say you should honor him and regard as some, him as an emperor who was put in place by God. No one receives authority unless they receive it from the Lord. Now, what does that say to us as Christians who are living in society, we don't have kings, kings and queens, that you, you know, emperors that we're supposed to honor. Well, I think this says something about how we speak about people and about leaders that we disagree with. If this passage says that we should honor emperors who persecuted Christians, amazing, that should give it, say something about the way that we speak about uh, people in our society who disagree with us um, in our political opinions. We should be marked by a manner of love in disagreement. And what that looks like, I'll tell you one thing that that looks like. You know, there's much political discussion happens in our lives, happens maybe it happened at Thanksgiving with your family members. Uh, it happens online. One thing that we should be marked by is that we always put our opponent's opinions 
in the best possible light. It was very common in political discourse that the people that we disagree with, we take the most foolish arguments from the other side and we argue against those. We build a straw man and we tear it down. And, uh, and we're not actually respecting the people that we disagree with when we, uh, when we argue in that way. And um, this spirit of respect is absent from our political discourse in our day. And as Christians, we should be champions of mutual respect. So this is the beginning of uh, our role in politics, is that we should be marked by a spirit of love when we talk about politics. And, you know, I'm going to come back to this, but the reason for that, why, why should we be marked by respect? Why shouldn't we get so heated and so offended when people say things to us and, and offend other people? It is the, uh, the reason for that is because Christ, as Christians, we know the limited power of government. The Bible says that people are in political power because God has put them there. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it were given you from above. The power that crucified Jesus was a power that was given by God from above. And our culture acts like politicians have this supreme power to direct society and our culture and because we give so much power in our view to politics, we get so amped about it. And we think that they have this godlike power. And so what the first thing for us, our role in, as Christians, is to turn down the temperature a little bit on our rhetoric and have civil discourse. This is encouraged uh, by the Bible here in Ecclesiastes. And so the first thing is that we're actually supposed to honor leaders, honor people that we disagree with. We're supposed to treat them with respect. And this should mark us as Christians. But the second thing we see in this passage, even though we honor our leaders, second, we as Christians are also supposed to be engaged in the process of politics. And you see this here in verse 3. Is even though here's a man who's in the court with a king that he disagrees with, it says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Stay in the presence of the king. God has put you there. And if you disagree with the king, do not just abandon the real rule he represents, but patiently stay present in the process. And you see this again in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There is a proper time and a just way to, say, to see change in the political system. And this passage is telling us that political influence generally does not happen through a revolution. God's people are not called to bring a revolution against uh, rulers that they disagree with. But it happens through patient, thoughtful, nuanced engagement. And, you know, Jesus uh, was insistent that his kingdom, when Jesus brought his kingdom... His challenge to the political parties in, in political rule in his day, the Roman Empire, it was not a revolutionary challenge. It was a reformational challenge. He says, my kingdom is like a seed that seems so small, it seems so weak, it seems so powerless, that it's put in the ground and it slowly grows up into a great mustard seed and transforms society slowly, reformationally. That's how his kingdom works. And so Ecclesiastes is giving us this vision of respecting those who differ with us while remaining wisely and thoughtfully engaged in seeking change in the politics around us. Now, we should be aware that Christians have had a huge influence on 
modern politics throughout history. Let me just give you a few examples of things that we just take for granted as Americans that have come from theological roots. So you take, for example, just elected representatives in our, in our nation. If you go back to Deuteronomy, you read Deuteronomy 1, and when the elders that ruled over uh, ancient Israel, they were not chosen by Moses, who was the leader of God's people. They were elected by the people, and they appointed heads of their clans and over their tribes. And this was true also in the churches. In the, in, the, in the early churches that were in the colonies and, uh, and the reformed churches and the, the, the churches of the Puritans, they elected their elders from, uh, from the congregation. And this gave a principle from the, church, the way the, the society of the church was run of how a society should be run that the people should elect their representatives. And it's also true that in the church, you know, what's the thing that binds us together as a church? If you become a member of Christ's church, one of the things that we read with you is something we call a membership covenant. It's a document that outlines what our life together is like. And actually, um, the, uh, the American uh, Puritans that lived in the colonies that, that were so, had so much uh, influence in forming the way our society is led had churches that were led that way, the congregational churches. And it was because of their vision of life together in the church that gave them this vision of a constitutional, covenantal govern, uh, uh, a society that, formed our, gov- that uh, formed our society. You look at the Christian understanding of original sin. Christians said that all people are born sinful. They have a corrupt nature. And so no one can be given absolute power. We have to limit the power that is given to any man. There must be checks and balances in government. This is a theological innovation. You look at um, Martin Luther during the Reformation, who had an insistence on the priesthood of all believers. He said that in the Christian church, there are not the holy priests who are up here, and then all the lay people who are down here. He said, no, all God's children are actually priests to the nations. All people live a holy life. And this was the thing that laid the foundations for an egalitarian uh, modern democracy, is that we viewed all people as equal. And actually, as Protestants, one of the things that we highlighted was that to be a Christian, you were a Christian not because of your ethnicity, not because of your uh, family or clan or the, the community you grew up in. You were a Christian because you had personally embraced Christ. It was a free choice. And it was that vision of the spiritual life that led to the formation of the free individual that we understand as Americans, that is just foundational for society. All of these things are incredible, radical innovations in human society, and they all have their roots in Christian theology. Christianity is not a private spirituality. It is a comprehensive, society-shaping worldview. We have so many resources. And so it's integral for us as Christians to be thinking about our theology and applying it into society because it is our theology that actually brings justice and peace and freedom. And so as we think about being engaged, what should we care most about in the political process. And this is the third thing that I want to say that our role in society is not just that we honor our leaders and that we're engaged in the process, but third, that we defend the weak. That should mark Christians' passion is a defending of the weak. And you see this here in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked 
buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now what this is describing is that uh, there were these wicked men who actually praised in their, in their in the city. And, um, and in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about wicked men, it's not primarily talking about people who are getting drunk and sleeping around. Those are the fools who are getting drunk and sleeping around. The wicked men are the ones who are oppressing the poor and oppressing the weak. And it says here that, there was, that, um, that the sentence against evil was not executed speedily. And that this is one of the things that a government is for, what the state is for, is to protect the weak. And it's the primary role of a government is to curb injustice. And, you know, when it comes to questions of justice, it's very important that as Christians, we are willing to listen to the church globally and the church's opinions about what it means to defend the weak. Because... Injustice is actually a very complex question. And I, I wish I had more time to go into it, um, but it's a complex matter. And um, there are certain things that Christians from different cultures, from different centuries throughout the world have been insisted upon that are important ways of defending the weak. And I should say one thing is the matter of abortion. Uh, Christians, even in the early centuries of the church, in, uh, uh, in the Roman Empire, Christians were marked for standing against abortion and infanticide, which was a common practice in the, in, in the Roman world. Actually, girls were systematically killed in the, in, in the ancient world, and that's why the church, the early church, was actually two-thirds women. Statisticians have shown that the early church was two-thirds women because they embraced women. They brought uh, girl babies in, and they didn't practice abortion. And that's one of the reasons that the church grew so much in the Roman Empire, and they, that they were insistent upon. This, this is something that the church has been in, uh, insistent upon from its early years, is that we, this is, these are the weakest people in society, are children, babies, and we must protect them. And that's still a global opinion of the church. We should hear that. But I'll also tell you a global opinion of the church is to care for the poor as well. It's probably one of the things that you hear uh, most in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets, is that nations, governments, were rebuked and God's wrath turned against them because they did not care for and protect the poor among them. God has a special love for the poor. Now, I'm not going to, in a 30-minute sermon, uh, answer all the complex questions that go with both abortion and helping the poor. But what this means is that no matter where you are on, either, or on any of these issues, we as Christians must continually resist the temptation to align the Christian church with any political party. That is to take a worldly institution and substitute it for the kingdom of God. There is no worldly institution that matches the kingdom of God. And our strongest allegiance the voice that we should feel the most solidarity with is the global church. Do you feel that? Do you feel solidarity with the, the global church? Now, how can I know whether I'm aligning myself more with a political party 
than God's kingdom? Well, one way to answer that is what stirs your emotions the most? American political questions or questions about the church? What gets you the most amped, the most excited? What do you read the most about? What do you want to be the most knowledgeable on? Is it the church or is it a presidential debate? The church is the pillar and buttress of truth in society, and the hope of the world is found here in the church. Do you believe that? One, uh, and one way that you can guard from honoring too much a political party is a fourth role that we play in, the, in politics as Christians is that we see in this passage, you may not expect, but I think it's really important, is that it's important that you simply enjoy your life. Look at what it says in verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What we have to remember is that these simple enjoyments of life, just being with your family and eating together and and working, are far more important than politics. Do you know that your, your family's Thanksgiving dinner was more important than the presidential debate? Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, yes. I heard a yes. Good. Good. Let me read to you. This is what C.S. Lewis says, which I think uh, this is from his book, The Way to Glory, and his thoughts on politics. And uh, I think this is profound. Actually, if you hear in this passage, it sounds like he's thinking about Ecclesiastes. This is what he says. As long as we are thinking only of natural values, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal or two friends talking over a pint of beer, or a man alone reading a book that interests him, and that all economies, politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere plowing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of spirit. Unless wars... Governments, politics, laws are making more families sit around their table and laugh together. They're useless. This is the end of politics. And so we must be modest in our view of the role of politics in life. And one of the reasons for this is the second heading that we're going to look at in this passage. So first of all, our role in politics is that we're supposed to honor our leaders. We're supposed to engage the process. We're supposed to defend the weak. And we're supposed to enjoy our life. But second, we must look at the limits of politics. And the two biggest limits we learn from the Bible are these, that first of all, the state cannot save an individual, and second, the state cannot bring peace to the world. Two things, the state cannot save an individual or bring peace to the world. So first, the state cannot save an individual. You see this in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Now, what this passage is saying is that there is a limit 
on what man's ingenuity can do for other human beings. You can't know their future. You can't plan another human being's future for them. You don't know the future. You can't shape their passions. You know, it says no man can retain the spirit. What uh, commentators say that's probably talking about is you can't shape someone's beliefs and passions. You can't engineer their emotional life and their inner life and their character and who they are. You cannot create all those things. This is something only God can do. And most of all, you cannot keep them from the day of death. Increasingly, our culture expects the state to make humans thrive. We envision that the state is going to make humans thrive. State support for the poor, for state education, for state health care. We tend to think that if we could just engineer these things, if all these things were calculated correctly, we could rescue people from the effects of the fall. If we did our politics right, we could stop the fall. And increasingly, the roles that were played historically by the extended family, the neighborhood, the church, are being taken on by the state. And so any attempt for the state to act as a savior, Christians are going to be critical of. Because we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord who can only, only the Lord who can save an individual. And uh, is this to say that the state plays no role in human flourishing? Absolutely not. But we must start from a place of modesty. And the more our culture re- rejects the Lord and doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, the more and more we are going to be giving the roles that God is supposed to play, we are going to give that role to the state and ask the state to fulfill that for us. So first, the state cannot save an individual. The second thing is the state cannot bring peace to the world. You see this verse, second half of verse 8. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness drive those who are given to it. Now what this is talking about, there's no discharge from war. What is that talking about? It was saying that through no human effort are we going to stop wars that they're going to be over. Human effort cannot create that. Um, Not through human ingenuity, not through human planning, nor can we direct human history or the future. Now, does this mean that the U.S. should not fight ISIS? Because I'm saying we cannot bring peace to the world. I'm not saying that. You may have different views on that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we should be modest as we enter into that discussion. Um, that the state, nations, do help to curb injustice. They do have a responsibility to defend the weak. But it does mean that as Christians, any military action that is taken, we should be well aware that peace among the nations will never come through human militaries or through human diplomacy. Peace among the nations will not come through human militaries or human diplomacy. But peace only comes through the Prince of Peace, King Jesus. And I think it's important for us as Christians to recognize these limitations because over the past century, Christians, both on the left and the right, have had visions, they've had hopes for our society. And they said, how can we bring this hope to our society if we could just get the right people in office, we could get into a place of power, and we could create this society that we are envisioning. And we believe that politics can give us that society. And I put a quote for you. If you turn to the sermon page, there's a quote from James Davison Hunter. He's a, a, 
a sociologist at the University of Virginia, he wrote a really helpful book called To Change the World. And, um, and this is what Hunter says. At best, the state's role addressing human problems is partial and limited. It is not nearly as influential as the expectations most people have of it. It is true that laws are not neutral. They do reflect values. But laws cannot generate values or instill values or settle the conflict over values. The belief that the state could help us care more for the poor and the elderly, slow the disintegration of traditional values, generate respect among different groups, or create civic pride is mostly illusory. It imputes far too much capacity to the state and to the political process. There's limits to what the state can do. Now this raises a question. Because if it's a problem when Christians try to use the state's power to enforce our vision of society, if we're too committed to politics, there's also a problem if we're too removed from politics. Actually, one of the... Uh, most important historical examples of this was the Lutheran Church in Germany in the 1930s. Because the Lutheran Church had a vision of the two kingdoms, where Lutherans said, you know, there's the earthly kingdom and there's the spiritual kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. And they're, they're very distinct. They don't influence each other. They don't overlap. And so the church did not speak against the Nazis and became imp impotent as the Nazis just took over and eventually took over the church and totally corrupted the church. And so the question is, how do we resist both these errors of becoming not too committed to politics and not too withdrawn either? And this leads to our third point, is that the gospel, understanding that the gospel is fundamentally political. Now, most of you, when you hear that statement that the gospel is political, you probably hear me saying, the gospel is about American politics. That's probably the opposite of what I mean. Okay? Uh, what I actually mean is that the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, is an announcement that Jesus is the true king of the world. And he has bid all people everywhere to come and bend their knee to him and give him obedience. And I think, you know, for many of us, when we read verse 2, it says, uh, I say... Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. You know, we read that as modern Americans, like, who's the king? I don't even have kings. This doesn't apply to me. But who's our king? Jesus is our king. Of course this applies to us. We are a part of a kingdom. We are subjects in a kingdom where Jesus is the king, and we do his command. Now, this is the interesting thing. Our ultimate political allegiance is to the kingdom of God and not to the kingdoms of this world, which, by the way, includes America. Our ultimate allegiance is to God's kingdom, which means that we should have more solidarity with the African Pentecostal Christian who loves Jesus than the atheist American who lives down the street. We feel a deeper bond with them. Now, does that mean that we don't care about America? No. I love America. I love the fact that we get to live here. We have many freedoms that we should thank God for. We should celebrate. But our love for America is secondary to our allegiance to God's kingdom. That is a profoundly loud political statement. And, 
you might think that when Jesus says he is bringing a spiritual kingdom, you know, Jesus is bringing a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom of heaven. That means that, you know, we should be monks and we should kind of isolate ourselves from, you know, uh, political protests and we shouldn't argue our political positions and we just kind of close our eyes and we connect with the kingdom of God in some spiritual way. But that is totally wrong. That's the opposite of what the kingdom of God is about. Jesus said, he taught us to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 11:15 says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus says that his kingdom is like leaven that you put in a, in a lump of dough and the leaven spreads through the whole thing. These are all immensely political statements that Jesus is not a spiritual guru who's trying to teach us how to deal with our anxiety, but Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has claimed himself as the true ruler of all the nations of the world. That is a profound statement. This is a wild statement. That's not often what we think about what being a Christian means is that Jesus is the true king of the world. And so much of the writings of the apostles was a challenge to Caesar, who was the Roman Empire, saying Caesar is not the true lord of the world, the true Kyrios, but Jesus is the true lord of the world. And Jesus is challenging Caesar's lordship and right to lordship over the nations as the one who brings peace. And the interesting thing is that Jesus' followers, they say, we're part of this kingdom, we're taking over the world, Jesus is the true king of the world, and what do they do? They never form an army. They never try to get political office and try to get in power. They love people. It is a kingdom of love that gradually takes over the world and is now the most enduring and the largest kingdom the world has ever seen, and it is still alive now in every nation of the world today. It's alive, and we're a part of it. And so what this says, and by the way, in the, in, in the uh, early church, politicians did become Christians. And their politics began to be shaped by their faith, which tells us that politics will not save us. But in Jesus, politics will be saved. It is, politics are, is, are, are not the thi- is not the thing that transforms but is one of the things that will be transformed by him. And so we are present in politics, in the discussions. We apply our theology to understand how a nation is wisely led and ruled, and we think about how the weak are defended. But we do all this with a tempered spirit that forces us to listen to others and respect those who disagree with us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, knowing that Jesus is the true king knowing that Jesus, the true king, is constantly breaking our political systems because they always fall short of his kingdom. This is a part of our theology, is that the kingdom is not here yet. And my political vision always falls short of Jesus' political vision. It always falls short. And so this sermon is actually connects perfectly with Advent because Advent is saying... King Jesus, come. Your kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know there will be no peace until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word challenging us in so many ways.
we pray that our small community here, we would represent both a love for those who disagree with us, peaceable spirits, living at peace with those around us, but also intelligent, wisely applying our theology into the complex political system of our society. We pray for our nation that uh, you would indeed bring your peace. Give wisdom to our leaders. And we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.